Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, it's Alex Andreu here with a surprise bonus edition of Oh God, What Now? If you're a Patreon backer, you'll know that every Monday we send you a tasty little microcast called Oh God, What Else? It features the regulars talking about some less overtly political topics, everything from our best and worst life decisions to whether Naomi can persuade Ian to take the plunge into veganism. If you're not a Patreon supporter, here's a special supercut of some of our favourite additions to show you what you're missing. A kind of, now that's what I call, oh God, what else, if you like. If this compilation whets your appetite for more, why not back us on Patreon? For as little as £2 a month, you'll get the main podcast early and without ads, and oh God, what else, every Monday. Let's start off with a classic from the catalogue. Ian and Naomi talking about the politics of one of Naomi's obsessions, horror movies. Now, Ian, COVID-19, climate change, Afghanistan, are horror writers now having to catch up given the extent to which real life terrors have outpaced fictional ones? I don't know. I think that they've they've always been there, right? Like, I mean, it was amazing when the first Mm. lockdown came, it was amazing how many options there were to turn to for, for stuff that just felt shockingly fucking relevant. One of them was, <laughs> I watched the other day, like 28 Days Later. Yeah, I mean, especially that. So tw- 28 Days Later felt like it had it all over it when I watched it the other day. Um, and I felt the same way about Alien that I watched yep. the other day, which again, I mean, obviously it's, it's a little bit less on the nose because, you know, you're not, it's, it's not quite so literal. But the, the manner in which they talk about the alien, it, it can almost stand for COVID, the way it latches onto the face, it's in the throat, they have to wear masks around it, you know, everything they try to... It, it, no, no, some could, people have actually got masks that are the face hugger mask. That's that, those are the masks oh, they've been wearing during COVID. Amazing. I want one. If, if anyone's listening, wants to... Send in some freebie ones. That'd be great. <laughs> really? You, you. I mean, you dress very elegantly. You're really going to put a face hugger mask on top of that? It is the best film of all time. So yes, I would. I, I'm actually. I think I'm probably with you 100 percent on that. I don't, there's. I. I can't think of another film that I've watched quite as many times as Alien. Same. Same. Although I have watched 28 Days Later a lot. Which, which I mean, also stands up really, really well. By the way, I think. In fact, it stands up astonishingly well. I think that this kind of this is kind of one of the things that I thought we would talk about, really, of, of th- there has to be a reason that this kind of storytelling is so conducive to exploring these kind of ideas. Because it's not like, you know, I, I quite like rom-coms, you know, and I quite like superhero movies. I, I, no, I mean, who am I kidding? I fucking love superhero movies. But, 
it, none of them really have the capacity to explore this stuff in the same way. And I think it's because horror, it's sort of weirdly, it's horror and stand-up comedy have this kind of free pass to explore some pretty mucky stuff when they choose to, like all of our kind of deep anxieties and the stuff that always comes up. Yes, it's stuff like like pandemics, but it's also kind of reliably shit around sort of civilization. Are we just like properly just violent, awful people, really? Sex comes up a lot. Religion comes up a lot. It's basically this forum for us to explain what makes us so fucked up. Like who we really are when the structures around us break down how close we ever are from mm-hmm. anarchy and from, you know, just becoming the the survivalist instinct animals that we really are. I mean, zombie horror is a particular favourite of mine, like subgenre within horror. And I think it's in part because as a liberal, it's utterly terrifying to me to lose free will and to be commanded by mm-hmm. another. Oh, wow. I also think it taps into like the civil rights movement. I think zombie films are often about the end of somebody's world. It's often about the end of white supremacy too. And it's the idea that those who aren't yet infected start fighting back and life as you have known it to to be has been completely called into question i mean are are there sort of horror films that that you can think of that that you feel resonate more in terms of their social commentary and and you know your interest in politics than others i mean recent so the the closest i had to that recently is and i'm sorry about this this is slightly an arty pick but but it just is literally the best example is um a guatemalan film called la llorona la llorona means the crying woman it's a weird thing it's it's uh like that you know, the woman in black, it's basically that story. And I think the in India, they have a very similar story. And there's one in Guatemala, it's, you know, the woman who's crying for the, the ghost of the woman because of the death of her children. And it takes place, there's a guy who was basically Rios Montt, the former dictator of Guatemala. They barely even bothered to conceal him. And he's in his house. It's essentially a haunted house movie. He's in his house, his palace, and it's completely surrounded outside by these protesters who are shouting no justice, no peace, and he just can't leave. So that, you know, usually you've got a cabin in the woods that you can't leave because the car doesn't work and blah, blah, blah. He can't leave because of these demonstrations outside. And there he starts to be haunted by the things that he did to the Mayan population in the Civil War. It's a proper haunted house movie, but effortlessly just took all of these tropes and turned it to make this really quite acute, pulverizing political point. And I see that all, I mean, you look around now, you look at, you know, Candyman that just, we saw like a couple of weeks ago, over and over, you see that horror is just very conducive to doing that. Absolutely. Not in the zombie mold at all, or even the haunted house one. But to my mind, sort of a quintessentially political horror is The Wicker Man. And you have Mm -hmm. modern day versions of it, like the Purge series that have built on it, perhaps not quite as uh, effectively as the original Wicker Man. But it's this notion that a healthy society is one that must perform sacrifice. You know, only once the blood has been let can the harvest Mm -hmm. be bountiful and people be be happy and and for society to sort of all be okay. Um, (laughs) You know, and I'm sure we all lie awake at night thinking which which blood we'd let and who we'd sacrifice from the cabinet in order to be happier. (laughs) Ian, I think another classic that is rooted in uh you know the the social commentary of its time and the political economy of the era is the 1956 film invasion of the body snatchers um and if you remember this is aliens infiltrating small town america Mm. taking over the bodies of the locals a decade after world war ii had just 
ended and the fear of communism spreading its tentacles around the world and maybe even reaching into small town America was at its absolute zenith. Are there any sort of really old classics like that that you think may have helped to kind of shape some of your politics or that really resonate with with your sort of you know, political interests and the, the things that fire you up to be interested in politics give you that same buzz when you're watching some kind of classic horror film. It's weird you mention that because lots of my favourite horror films involve that something being underneath the body or dismantling the body. So, I mean, so obviously um, the thing, and anything of those early Cronenbergs um, of the sort of proper body horror and even sort of The Skin I Live In, that Almodovar film, which is yeah. quite recent, which is not like Almodovar to do a horror film, but it was a deeply disturbing and it was a horror film. So mm. all that sort of sense of like undermining identity and undermining the body. Mm. And, uh, the more icky it gets, especially about the body, I think it worked. Now, you, we had a... <laughs> okay so i remember we did we were doing a podcast and you were asking me you know what animals could you be in a fight and i basically said i couldn't be any animals in a fight because i kind of fear them and the sludge and anything kind of gooey and icky and the reality i remember you know i read this like national geographic account on instagram and they've got all this stuff about you know like a i don't know it's like a spider that takes over the brain of a fox and makes it walk you know and you just like it's just so fucking horrific to me (laughs) genuinely nature horrifies me and i think that anything that reminds me of my biology (laughs) the fact you know really creeps me the fuck out i would like to try and come up with a political view of that but it's not that it's just something deeply ingrained that sketches me out There are, of course, worse horrors than being sliced up by a madman in an isolated cottage. What about having to finish writing your book? What's it actually like to write your magnum opus? Dorian has published books on George Orwell and protest songs, and he has more in the works. He talked to Roz about the endless, bitter battle between author and blank page. So your first book, uh, History of Protest Songs, called 33 Revolutions Per Minute, was it your idea or was it someone else's? What kind of, what was the impetus? I find, yeah, well, I find that a funny question because I kind of wish that, that, that somebody else did give me um, uh, ideas and commissions for books because what I realised is that the hardest bit, and I still think this, the hardest bit is not writing a book. I like writing books. It's actually selling a book. Um, so 33 Revolutions came out of a different idea, which is about protest music around the world, uh, sort of in the 21st century, um, because I'd be doing some pieces, reported pieces abroad, uh, in like Serbia and Kenya and Israel. And I was really interested in, you know, how, how people recorded protest music in, in difficult circumstances. Uh, and people were like, but these, nobody's heard of these people. <laughs> people will not buy this book. Um, and then actually there, there was a, a kind of like, literally like a one-line suggestion in, a, in one of the rejection letters which said, uh, well, I would be interested in reading a, a history, the entire history of protest music. Um, so I suppose you could say that somebody suggested it, as in while turning down one book, they, they suggested something that I thought was just going to be impossible. And then I kind of worked out a structure which happened to have a nice, you know, to go with a nice title. And then I was away, and the structure is very important. So you have to have the structure before you start writing, don't you? I mean, this is what people have told me. You basically have to have the chapter headings and you have to have the outline of each. Otherwise, you're going nowhere. Well, I mean, you have to have that in the proposal. 
And the proposals are horrible, absolutely horrible, because as some point out to me, you're basically describing a book. The trick is to describe a book as if it has already been written and you're just telling somebody what it's about. But of course, you haven't written it yet. And everybody knows, and this includes many, many very successful books, they evolve. So the, the one I'm working on at the moment, I think the structure is probably going to evolve uh, with the research. You know, not everything is as handy as that first one where it's like 33 revolutions, 33 chapters, decide on 33 songs, uh, you know, which, which, which put together tell the whole story. So you, you, you can have some fluidity, but you just have to convince people that you have the entire book in your head when the reality is, unless you're writing something like super quick and super punchy, you know, that's very topical. The reality is most, most writers don't. And there is, a, a, there is a sort of journey that you go on. And as you learn things, you, you kind of, you rethink what you're doing. And hopefully you end up with something that is still kind of resembles the thing that people paid money for. Um, but it's never, you have to create the illusion of absolute certainty. What are the paradoxes of writing at the now, as opposed to say, I don't know, 100 years ago, or even 50 years ago, seems to me that while writing is a deeply solitary occupation, and I don't really know how you could make it less solitary, I would love to, because I don't thrive in that kind, those kind of conditions, but you know, it fundamentally is, I think. While you, it has to be done on your own, you at the, are at the mercy of constant interruptions, especially if, you know, like, like both of us, you have you know, multiple different things going on in your life, both personal mm. and professional. How did you deal with that? Were you able to sort of to uh, stop the distractions and control them? And how did you do that effectively? Well, if you mean the distractions of like other work that I need to earn money, like yeah. that's that's a really tricky thing because if you're not, you know, if you're like most writers and you're not a celebrity or you're not the kind of thing with it, we, there's a huge bidding war, you know, you, an advance is not enough to write a book. I thought it was, uh, but it's not, it's not. And it was never meant to be. I always thought you're being paid to write the book. That's not what advances are for. And that is not what most of them achieve. So there's a really tricky bit where, you know, I have to, had to decide, okay, when do I have to step away from the podcast? When do I have to stop freelancing? Like that's really hard. And I suppose the best bit is when you've just doing nothing else and you can literally do like every, every day, every day you're working, you're just thinking about that because then your brain is, is, it's all going in one direction. And just as a freelancer, you know, that, that, and I mean, people in many lines of work, you know, obviously it's better when you can focus on one project and you don't have to kind of suddenly snap into other things. But then you have to balance that with how much money you need to earn from those other things. The distraction itself, I don't know. I know some people do have like kind of web blockers and disappear from social media and so on. I didn't do that because I actually thought that social media in a positive way, not in a getting into stupid arguments way was was a way to feel less solitary so I would sometimes pop pop onto Facebook some interesting quote that I'd come across that I thought would be entertaining to people and actually the fact that so many people were interested in those little nuggets of research made me think they'd be interested in the book you can get so much into your own hole and into your own brain that it's almost like you can get to that thing will anybody care about this and if you just kind of like doing almost little teasers out there and people are going, oh, that is an interesting uh, quote or fact. Then it's sort of, that for me gave me much more confidence. Yeah, precisely. I'm quite terrified of going to my 
deep into my brain. I mean, I, I don't really <laughs> want to find whatever is in there. Um, so I, I think I have to somehow build in, yeah, as you say, those stimuli from outside that that would keep keep me going. Did, did you do sort of rewards? I mean, I have a slightly doggy treat approach to to writing stuff and to editing stuff that I don't want to do. I give myself a reward afterwards because um, the reward of actually finishing it is not apparently enough. Did do you do that as well? I did on the first one. I don't think I got around to it on the second one. Like the first one, I bought a big framed print for myself and went out for a nice dinner. I'm not sure. I kind of forgot on the second one and I was quite knackered as well. <laughs> I think I just felt exhausted. But I, know, I mean, I know this sounds kind of a little bit, it sounds a little bit nerdy, class what, but genuinely the satisfaction was writing and finishing it and suddenly realising like, oh, I can cut that bit. Oh, that bit should move there. Oh, that's a better introduction. Oh, that I found this quote at the last minute, which suddenly kind of brightens up a whole page. And being able to file, I'd literally filed on the day with the second book. I literally filed on the day of the deadline. And that was so satisfying that, like, that was sort of my high. And I didn't really know what to do. You know what I mean? <laughs> there was like, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't really need a treat because it's like, oh, I finished this thing. And that that is the satisfaction because obviously with journalism, unless you do like say Guardian long reads or, or the New Yorker or something, where a piece can really really take you months. Most journalism, it's like it, it's sort of it's it's a week, it's two, it's days, it's weeks, it's maybe a month, and then you move on to the next thing. So you can feel quite happy, um, but you don't get that same sense of satisfaction as when you have a book and it's like a solid thing that you created from nothing. Of course, what all these shilly-shallying authors need is a bit of discipline, and where best to acquire it than in one of our world-beating and child-beating public schools. Ian was educated at one, and I talked to him about the experience, which includes Ian getting lost in the jungle and retreating into military mode. I remember that. I got lost in the jungle in Chile, and I went fully public school and (laughs) snap very confident decisions that ultimately worsened my situation. (laughs) Yes, this is something I was really interested in. You described it as a sort of militarised public school mode where despite the fact you were lost, you kept deciding to move very confidently in different directions. And it made me think of Johnson right now, basically. Is he in that kind of mode, militarised public school mode, where he's lost in the jungle but rather than admit it, he will just walk further and further into it. I was really struck in that moment because I was terrified. This is, I don't know how many years ago, this was like eight years ago or something. I was terrified. Like I was completely on my own. I had no idea how the hell I'd gotten there or how to get out. I was really, really scared. And it just took over that kind of drilled in public school thing of like, right, well, someone's got to take charge here. I mean, it's all for a fact that I was literally on my own. So there was no one else to take charge. <laughs> Someone has to take charge and off we go. And we're just going to do, no, no, you see this and we recognize that. And off we go. It's to the left. Obviously it's to the left. And you do that. I did that for about 15 minutes. And then of course, after the end of 15 minutes, I was like, well, I mean, if I was lost before, I'm definitely fucking lost now because I have no idea. I mean, it was all of that public schooling was massively to my detriment in that moment. Has it ever been not in your detriment? So other situations where that kind of militarized thinking has been a great asset. 
Maybe not that. The core message they give you is you are better and you belong everywhere. The first part of which I think is really toxic politically and socially, but the second part of which I think is really healthy. And it's probably the thing that I think you really do need to give to children just that we need to not be doing it only when parents have a certain amount of money. You know, that should be for all kids to have that all the time, and especially kids who have, you know, disadvantages of various sorts. I mean, that core message is is a good one. It's just that it's completely deranged and unjustifiable that it should be reserved for a tiny minority of the population on the basis of the wealth of their parents. But, you know, you drill that into a kid from a really early age and it will open up the world to them more than I think the connections or any of that. I mean, I never really got any kind of connection stuff from public school, certainly not in, in my sector. I've never known nothing in my work was ever sort of brought to me by people I knew at school or anything like that. But that sense of I belong, I have the right to be here. You know, no one's questioned all of that. That just opens up the world to you. Now, you weren't a boarder, but there are borders at the school. And this, to me, as a Greek person, is completely insane. Yes. Like like in Greece, if someone is sent to boarding school, it means that you're basically a devil child and your parents cannot manage you. So <laughs> you're put in boarding school as a punishment, genuinely. I was speaking to a German friend of mine the other day and she said something similar about private schools in Germany. She's trying, if you find out someone went to private school, it just you just think... Oh, evidently, you were just really quite stupid and, and needed extra help in order to survive in the educational system. It arguably is exactly the same thing as it is here. It was very helpful that there was that social attitude, that sneeriness towards it. Like, why would you need to spend money on the schooling, you know? if you have a normal sort of capacity for learning. To give us some sort of background, this is a prep school in Winchester. It's called Pilgrim School. It's a preparatory school for Winchester College, which you would go to at 13. I didn't go to Winchester because I was at that stage already really quite badly behaved and very kind of angry with the whole sort of thing. And it was decided that probably I should go to this to another school in Southampton. I think over half were boarders. I didn't get the sense that they were going through this very traumatic episode by being separated from their parents at that age. But, you know, I came from a family where you would never have considered sending someone to board because how would you do that to someone so young? Like, why would you separate them from their yeah. parents? Like, surely that would be very damaging. So, I was definitely imbued with that sense of this is not a sensible way of going about things. But I have to confess, I mean, the people that I spoke to at the time, the friends that I had, they didn't seem like they were particularly, you know, any more or less traumatized than the rest of us. And all of us were all semi-traumatized by the insane militarized vigor of the whole education system. James Scudamore, who also wrote a book about his experiences of public school, said it imbues you with, his expression was bulletproof confidence but blunted empathy. Did you find that? Is there maybe an answer there as to why our leadership structures in this country fail so often and so badly, it seems? I don't. I mean, I don't. I mean, I'm like a proper little crybaby. You put on any movie, you know, no matter how soap opera and badly made, and I'll blubber my way through it as soon as they want me to cry. Like my empathy filters have turned up a bit too high for polite society. So I didn't feel that 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 happened to me, it was more that there's a slight kind of humiliation and degradation process in the education system. But I can't tell how much that's, you know, because if, if I had been really good at any physical activity, no matter how dumb I was with anything else, or absolutely spectacular at any academic thing, then I just don't think any of that would necessarily have taken place, really. It's partly to do with the hierarchy. I also think mostly, it's not 
that people come out as one type from this kind of school and that that explains politically why we've got such hopeless tosses, you know, running the country. I think it's that once you get into that really fixed, baked in class system, you are picking from just this insanely narrow pool of talent. And you're blocking off, you know, huge numbers of people who would be far more talented than people who just happen to have rich parents and therefore goes to these kinds of schools. I know that the quality of education for people that people receive is lauded. And I've seen evidence of that. I've seen evidence of an education that is more curious about the world, I guess that is freer of a curriculum, but is it well-rounded? I was struck by something that Musa said in his conversation with me. He said, you know, all of these people could name all the wives of Henry VIII in order, but they couldn't name a single imperial massacre. Is there a sense that the anti-woke agenda that is now being pushed onto state schools stems a little bit from the public school system? My understanding from people who've been to grammar schools or state schools is that it was no different in terms of the subject matter. There was no real attempt to investigate, you know, British behaviour in India or something like that. It was ultimately a pretty glorious sort of story. What I remember is a, is a difference in the methodology of teaching. Mm. When I was in public school and then when I went to private school, private school in Southampton. I mean, it's, I know that to anyone that hasn't been in this kind of system, that that just sounds like two sides of the same thing. I mean, they're yeah. both, they're all paid schools but culturally there is a vast vast difference between private schools most of what you know which in my case was a former grammar and it sort of has that around it where that was really the private school was an exam passing machine there was no sense of really imbuing knowledge or a broad assessment or even sort of critical mm. that much critical mm. understanding it was learning how to take information from one place retain it and then put it down somewhere else in an exam hall and that would get you through. And, and that's what it was. It was a machine for achieving that goal without any real consideration of the human underneath it. The public school, for all of its faults and the kind of humans it was trying to create, did have an intention of creating a human underneath it. That sense of education was much more than just passing exams. And also, I have to confess, there were some teachers there who took an extremely broad approach to what education was, kind of ask me anything approach how does the world work approach didn't matter really what was on the syllabus. I mean, partly because mm. you're sort of extracted from that sort of stuff. I had one teacher, a very good teacher, actually. He was our English teacher, but he taught us how to watch film and how to watch television from yeah. sort of the minutest elements of looking at shadows on a wall and how different that is to a shadows on a wall in real life. And that's because there's studio lights there. Looking at the way that music affects your emotions are much more, I don't want to use the word holistic, but it, like a much broader sense of education of sort of equipping you to understand the world. There was bits of that. To give them some credit, there was that. It wasn't just an exam-passing machine, which is the kind of thing that I saw in the later stages of my education. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In past acting jobs, I've often been cast as a Muslim character. And in recent years, I've felt increasingly ambivalent about it. Is it okay for an actor to play a different culture or religion just because you look the part when you might be taking work away from someone who is of that culture or religion? Earlier this year, I talked it over with culture vulture, Minnie. I think probably where I see the actual problem is that if there was just like an abundance of of Muslim actors, so much so that the playing field was level, then probably it wouldn't be as big a deal if everyone kind of dipped in and out of playing each other's identities. It probably feels more jarring just because there are relatively few British Muslim actors who kind of either make it into becoming household names or like make it very far in the theatre world. I mean, at least that's my perception of it from someone outside of the industry you know I hardly ever see British Muslims in you know TV things or you Mm. know Riz Ahmed's the like you know the standout guy who's managed to make it really far and I wouldn't necessarily be aware of any theatre actors who are who identify as British Muslim so perhaps it's more that they're just the playing field is so unlevel that it feels like maybe taking space away from someone who could do it yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I, I understand that completely. But then, like I said, because of the sort of things I've worked in, I've worked with a lot of British Asian actors, mm. and so the 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 picture I see from backstage is a much more intricate than that. It's a mm. it's a much more shades of grey than that because I see, for instance, you know actors who are British Indian and are Hindu in religion get cast in yeah. <laughs> um, as, as Pakistanis that are Muslim. Or, you know, it, so there is a lot of that. You know, I see, I, I, I worked with, a, with a, a, an Iranian Christian that gets constantly cast as the the uh, fundamentalist terrorist yeah. <laughs> in these things. Um, and... And also, it it feels, you know, that if I'm, I, I mean, if I'm in a company where, if I'm doing a play, to take the Black Book, for instance, you know, that Hanif Qureshi is writing the script, and the director is Jatinda Verma, who is a, a sort of, um, he's he created Tara Arts, which which was the the first Asian theatre company in this country, if they see fit to cast me, Mm. um, I don't... It's very difficult for me to have moral objections to it. Do you know what I mean? Because because they're giving me permission to be this other thing. But I I have to say, I found the experience incredibly nerve-wracking. You know, because I, I even had to lead a prayer on stage. Wow. So I had to go to the Whitechapel Mosque for weeks and study. And even though we were doing a stylized, almost dance version of uh, leading uh, a prayer, 
I still needed to feel confident in myself that I wouldn't do something that would offend people, you know, and I took it incredibly seriously. But like I said, I don't, I don't know, and I guess that feeds into the more general debate on whether Islamophobia is racism or whether it is a different kind of similar creature that has to do with religious identity, if you know what I mean. I, it's a it's a tough one. It's a really hard one, and and I I keep getting um, invited to those things and and uh, auditioned for those things and cast. You know, I've I've played the Pasha Salim in Mozart's opera, The Abduction from the Seraglio, twice actually in two different productions, and. You know, he's a 16th century Turkish pasha. Mm. Is that okay? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's it makes my brain melt, and I and I am so desperate to get it right, mm. but I'm also desperate to not create a situation for myself where I end up just playing myself in every production because that's not why I became an actor. Yeah, I do. I I think that's quite a it's a really hard balance to strike, isn't it? Because actually, when you're talking about this, I think we've we've had this conversation before about kind of taking up space and what that means and stepping back. And it feels like to me that what you're describing is a sort of a feeling that maybe you are not the right person for the role, even though you could do it. And what does that look like actually for an actor who has all sorts of other commitments and needs to be paid. And also part of the job is playing a and, character and I have to tell you, And I have to tell you something, Minnie. This is not an uncommon feeling among, among actors, regardless of the part you're playing. You right, know, exactly. Everyone I know has massive imposter syndrome. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and they feel initially terrified and underqualified for the thing they've been cast in. There's yeah. very few people that, you know, that, swagger around like Johnny Big Balls, believing they're <laughs> they're made for every part they're they're cast in. And so it it really is quite difficult. And and I guess the the answer I think is it might be like a carbon offsetting. Mm. It 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 might be that you know with every such job you do you have also responsibility to be opening up and to be actively trying to open up every play to uh, actors that look different, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, because there's no reason why, uh, let's say, a Brecht play should be all white people. Brechtian characters are not naturalistic. They're not there... Uh, you know, Mother Courage doesn't exist as a person. She's a cipher. She's a symbol for something. The cook, the soldier, her daughter, they are symbols of people. They are general representation ciphers. So they can be cast as anyone, actually. Uh, and there's no, you know, there's no reason why things that are dealing with very common human conditions, basically, like Shakespeare or Ibsen, like they should be all white casts all the time mm. um and so i don't know <laughs> it's a diff it's a difficult one it's a you know it's a it's a really hard one and yeah. also because i look the way i look 
you know, and I go to an audition and no one, no one asks me, um, you know, where's your mother from and where's your father from? I either look right for the part or I don't look right for the part. Yeah. And that's really important in an industry where people are literally watching you, right? You have to be believable to the audience and you also have to, you know, feel like you fit the part as well. I sort of wonder whether this is a thing that happens that, you know, you take the roles when you're kind of starting off and then you do what you do, which is research them properly and get advice and talk to people maybe from those communities or whatever it is, the role that you're playing and making sure that you feel comfortable with the portrayal and then becoming super, super famous. And when you're super famous, taking a stance on whether you turn down roles or not, and also kind of saying publicly why you think that person needs to be different, because yeah. obviously there's a balance, isn't there, between there's a balance. you need to and, work. And there's and also, <laughs> yeah, there's a balance and there's also a, a level of, uh, you know, a level of doing it that becomes absurd and one that isn't, one that is about right. Yeah. Uh, for instance, you know, would I would I be entitled to insist that no one else gets to play Greek parts. Yeah. You know, would I be entitled to go along to the National Theatre putting on a production of Trojan Women or to the Almeida where I did, uh, you know, where I did Aristophanes' Frogs and say, what are all these English people doing here? It's a, (laughs) it's a, it's a hard (laughs) thing where, culture and ethnicity begin and where they end and and when you look the way I look you know I I go out in lovely South Bermondsey and I occasionally have oiks on bicycles shout at me p word go home Mm. and I have the same thing shouted at me when I'm in Athens (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) Yeah. I'm told I should go back to Pakistan when I'm in Athens anyway, yeah, <laughs> which is which is my country of birth. So it's like, if I look like I'm from there, why can't I play the part <laughs> like um, I'm from there? I mean, what am I going to be cast in? Uh, am I going to be cast as a Viking? I'm not. <laughs> Finally, if you sometimes hear a strange whistling noise on the podcast, it's probably one of us sneaking a quick vape. Okay, it's probably me, when we think nobody's noticing. What is the allure of the e-cig? Incorrigible vapor Ian explained it all to Roz through a watermelon-flavoured cloud. Are you in fact vaping now? I, I am. I mean, as you know, because we have had many editorial meetings together, I am, I'm vaping unless it's impossible for me to do so. I, and if I'm in a room where I'm not allowed. And even when I'm not allowed, I tend to have a tactic of just doing it until someone says I can't, because it kind of exists in that netherworld of a regulation where no one's quite sure whether they should allow it or not. And in most pubs, you can sort of get away with it. The posher restaurants, they're more likely to tell you to stop. And the people with you are more likely to look mortified <laughs> when you've created that situation. It's a bit like e-scooters, isn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, arguably causes less kerfuffle, but yeah. When when did you start vaping? 
Um, you, I don't know, sort of about probably about four or five years ago. I mean, basically when I quit smoking. So I found that nothing really worked for, for quitting smoking, partly because it is incredibly addictive, but also just because smoking is really fucking great. This is the thing that no one talks about with smoking, you know, which is actually that it's an incredibly pleasant thing to do. And so leaving it is extremely painful. It becomes more painful by virtue of the fact that most of the sort of professional people you meet, NHS and blah, blah, blah who were there supposedly to help you stop smoking, you can always see that twinkle in their eye of that kind of Protestant hatred of pleasure that makes you just sort of think, oh, fuck you. I feel like I'm just going to keep on smoking just to spite you, which obviously won't work out that well because I'll have to return to them when I'm, you know, when I was inevitably going to die of lung cancer or something. So it, it, it was quite childish, but, but I always found it very difficult and it remained difficult until um, I discovered vaping. I mean, uh, shall we say why we're talking about this? Because I mean, there has been, a, the, you, you sent me by WhatsApp the other day, a new Demos report. Is it a report or a sort of position statement? It's quite short. Well, to start with, it's sponsored by Juul. So, you know, in one sense. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's a Demos report. It's basically a kind of bit of a warning saying, shouldn't we be tightening up on all this? And also, aren't the packages and the general allure of these vaping cartridges, isn't it? Am I using the right vocab? No, not really. I mean, it no, can okay. be a, there often is a cartridge of some sort, but, you know, just a vaping, yeah, yeah. Yeah, vaping. Isn't it all looking a bit too glamorous, and maybe we should crack down on it? That was the general tone. I got the sense that it might have got further if it hadn't been sponsored by Jewel, but that may be unfair to the author, who I do have a lot of time for. We should point out that Jewel is a very, it's a very successful sort of smoking brand, which really does sell cartridges. It's the sort of easier end of the market if you just buy the cartridge, slot it in, and off you go. There's no dabbling around, you know, with pouring liquids into bottles and all of that sort of stuff. Tremendously successful and have come under really quite sustained political assault in the US. They were sort of the great white hope, really, of the sort of the vaping mainstreamization process, but have kind of been been regulated and just politified into an, a defensive crouch at this stage. To the point where, by the way, last time I was in the US, I, I went to a shop where I was trying to get some jewel. I was using a jewel back then. And in this shop where behind, because they don't have plain packs or anything for cigarettes and you don't have to hide it away. All the cigarettes are out there, proud as you can be, very colourful. And the guy's like, oh no, we've got new regulations, I can't sell you jewel. And you're just like, you realise that this is functionally insane. Like what you've done here is, is a completely insane setup. Well, it's even more curious because, as we know, a lot of states in the US are easing up on cannabis and yet they're still, you know, which 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 is very good. But to do that while simultaneously making it more difficult to have e-cigarettes is kind of odd to my mind. I mean, look, we, I think we, there can be a debate about regulation of e-cigarettes. What there can't be is, I think, any situation where you have regulated them more than you have regulated cigarettes is insane. And that is where so many, I mean, some countries have an outright ban. I mean, the last time I checked, Australia was one of them. You know, and really across Asia, you see very draconian regulation, but cigarettes are still on sale. So the sort of thing, if you've taken all of this on cigarettes and it's equal terms, then fine. You, you've got at least the credibility, I won't agree, but you've got the credibility to have an argument about regulation of vaping. If you are regulating e-liquids harder than you're regulating cigarettes, you, you have gone completely crazy. And, and there's no possible rational world in which that is a conclusion a sensible person would come to. The UK actually took quite a liberal stance on vaping, and it did that deliberately because it saw it as a way to get people off cigarettes. That's right. And yeah. 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 
And that seems to have been, you know, a, a memorably good policy decision. And in a, in a way, it would be a shame to row back from that. I would also give a lot of credit, by the way, to anti-smoking groups like Ash in the UK, who for years I just thought were just these killjoy twats, really. You know, this constant attempt to ban smoking. I, I feel quite uh, defensive towards smokers and still do. And I just sort of think, oh, you know, they, they were so tedious and, and would never have the sort of honesty to say what they really wanted, which is just to ban it. And yet Ash have been brilliant on vaping in a way that so many anti-smoking groups around the world have not. That, you know, they saw it exactly for what it was early on. There was a lot of debate back then, this is about 10 years ago, of saying, well, does it normalize smoking? You know, in other words, you know, because it looks a bit like it, shouldn't we be just as tough? Which just really infantile argument. Um, and they were always really quite stern on that, just going, no, look, anything that works that gets people off cigarettes is something that we should explore. And I think because of that, because the anti-smoking lobby was so rational about it, it really helped with the way that regulation panned out in this country. The real weak spot with regulation, probably not the best place to talk about it, actually came from the EU in terms of what affects Britain. I mean, the EU regulations that came in in 2016 were just so, they were so odd. I mean, one of them was limit, it limits to, I think, two milliliters, the size of the chamber in a vape device. Now, there's just no, it just makes no sense. Why would you do it? It, it limits the size of the bottles of liquid that you can buy. You can buy as many of them as you want, but, it, but they all have to be in small bottles. You can't just have them in one big bottle. Again, just completely bizarre. And those two are fairly harmless, but pointless. The one that's really damaging, I think, is that they limit the strength of nicotine that you can have in the liquid. And that, to me, is the really dangerous bit. Because what you want, you know, you can lower the nicotine level later. But if you're trying to get a smoker to try vaping, the chief thing to do is just satisfy their drug addiction. You know, because the, the nicotine is not harmful. This is the core thing that must be understood. And there's a real myth around it. The nicotine is not harmful. So we've got, a, we've got an agent to deliver it that strips out all of the harmful things that we have with cigarettes and we can get you onto this other thing and you're still getting all of the stuff you had before. That's the key. And so to limit the strength of nicotine was such a silly, silly, silly move. And I'm kind of, there is a chance that the British government will undo this now. And if they do, it'll be helpful to me because I can appear more reasonable than I actually am on Brexit because I'll be able to say, finally, I've actually found the Brexit dividend. <laughs> it will be like a lump of gold in my head. I'd be like, I found it, guys. It's been eight years, <laughs> but I finally found it. And that's your bonus edition. Now that's what I call Oh God, What Else? We hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can get a new minicast every Monday when you back us on Patreon. There's a new one out this Monday with me and Naomi talking about fluctuating political allies, how we can find ourselves over the last few years allied to Michael Heseltine or the Pimlico Plumbers guy or James Melville, and what happens when the issue that united us goes away and we revert to our former camps. And by supporting us, you'll also be helping us to hire talented young producers, make more exciting podcasts, and generally fight the good fight. Search Patreon, oh God, what now, to find out more. Thanks for listening. See you next time.